Throughout time, there have been some history-changing deaths. Every so often, a person comes along in the world who's so important that when he or she passes away, the world is never the same. Deaths of great people have set off revolutions that have left entire nations transformed. This subject immediately makes me think of the death of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, which you all know, I'm sure, from 1914, June 28, 1914, just over 100 years ago now. The death of Ferdinand has to be on the top three list of the most history-changing deaths. Back in the early 1900s, there was a lot of conflict between Serbia and Austria-Hungary. Serbia had become a sovereign state again, trying to reclaim some land from ages ago. And Austria-Hungary had just annexed Bosnia or Bosnia-Herzegovina, and that angered the Serbs. So there's high tension among these two states. Well, in June 1914, Ferdinand, who was the heir to the throne of Austria-Hungary, was visiting the recently annexed territory of Bosnia. And that's when seven Serbian teenagers plotted to assassinate him. They were spread throughout the town on the main avenue, waiting for his motorcade to pass by as he visited the city hall. And when the motorcade passed by, a group of the young men, they took a bomb, they threw a bomb at his open-aired car, but it bounced off the car and rolled under the wrong car, and that would-be assassin was arrested. Ferdinand, meanwhile, instead of fleeing, he continued. He continued, like usual, to the city hall. Well, a little bit later, that motorcade, they turned down the wrong street by accident, And they ran into another one of the assassins who just happened to be standing right there. And as the motorcade was backing up to get back into the main avenue, this young man, 19-year-old young man, took out a pistol and shot point-blank Ferdinand and his wife, pierced him in his neck, hit his wife in the abdomen, and they both died within minutes. Now you might wonder, okay, well, how is the death of Ferdinand such a big deal? You probably haven't heard of him or you've forgotten about him. It's not like you think about him every day. But if you can think back to your high school history class, The assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand was the main domino that directly led to World War I. After his death, Austria-Hungary sent an ultimatum to Serbia because they thought the government was involved. Serbia rejected, so Austria-Hungary declared war on July 28, 1914, one month after Ferdinand was killed. And that, that kicked into motion a series of European war treaties The following week, Russia had mobilized in support of Serbia. The Germans mobilized in support of Austria-Hungary. You know what happened after that. France, the UK got involved, America and other countries. By the end of the fighting in 1918, 9 million soldiers were dead. 7 million civilians were dead. The borders of Europe were forever changed and the world would never be the same. So in a real sense, the death of Archduke Franz Ferdinand forever changed modern history as we know it. When most people pass away, the world doesn't change. Nothing really changes. But for this man's death, after his death, the entire world has never been the same. Now you can spend more time searching the history books, trying to find the most significant deaths in history. But look no further, because I'll tell you, if you take all the deaths of all the great men of all history and add them together, they still pale in significance to the death of one, and that is the death of Jesus Christ. Never has there been so significant a death. Never has so much been accomplished in a death. Never has so much changed after a death. Never has the world been so changed by a death. 
Never has a death affected eternity itself, but the death of Christ did all that and more. And this morning, we come to witness firsthand the death of Christ and behold its world-changing, history-changing effects. Take your Bibles, open them to Mark chapter 15 once more. Mark 15. After over two years of going through Mark's gospel, verse by verse by verse, we finally, today, we finally arrive at the passage where Jesus actually dies. Today we witness the death of Christ. But his was no ordinary death because he was no ordinary person. What we have learned going through Mark for two years is who Jesus is. He is a man, but not just a man. He is the God-man, God incarnate, the Word made flesh. He's also the Messiah, David's son and David's Lord. And based on knowing who he is, we would expect such a one to be greater than death. And he is, but he still dies. And that's unexpected. His disciples did not expect him to die. But given who he is, we should also expect that if he does die, well, it's not going to be a meaningless death. It has to be for some grand reason. And indeed, that is the case. Months before his death, Jesus told his disciples what must happen to him in Jerusalem. This was no accident. He told them, Mark 8:31, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed. This is the plan. This had to happen. This is something he had to do. At the same time, Jesus was marching to that cross of his own volition. This is a place he was going because he wanted to. His life wasn't being taken from him. But given, he was laying down his most precious life. Why? Well, to change the world. To change forever the eternal destinies of countless men and women. And for this reason, the death of Christ, it is the defining element to our faith, the Christian faith. And for this reason, it's been our joy to behold the death of Christ for quite a while here in Mark chapter 15. Almost two months we've been in Mark 15 verses 22 through 38. In no rush, trying to examine, just take in that the death of Christ all over again. I mean, what happened? How did he die? Why did he die? What did his death accomplish? Well, so far through this passage, we've seen Jesus as the sacrificial lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the long-awaited Messiah foreseen to die in this manner, fulfilling the plan of God and redemption. In addition to being the son of God, he's also the seed of the woman, the promised one who would come and finally lift the curse of death from us all. And Jesus accomplished all this on the cross by entering into God's white hot wrath. That wrath, though, came in the time of darkness on the cross when God the Father did not flee from Jesus, but he showed up to make his wrath known on the Son. Yet Jesus, being fully God, was able to fully endure that righteous wrath toward our sins. For us to drink the ocean of God's wrath dry would take eternity. But Christ was able to drain the cup of God's wrath to the full, leaving not a drop for us. And after accomplishing his mission, the darkness lifted, and all that was left for Jesus to do was seal this new covenant sacrifice by offering up his very life. And that's what he does in our passage for today, Mark 15, 33 through 38. Here we come to the actual death of Jesus on the cross, which tells us even more about his person and his work. But this passage begins to uniquely show us the effects of his death. 
what changes when he dies? Like I said, his was no insignificant death. But at the very moment, his death is so powerful, at the literal moment he breathed his last, the world changes forever. History would never be the same. How? Well, this morning we're going to find out. Our goal this morning is to finish studying the actual death of Christ, beholding the very end of his time on the cross. But we also want to give some special attention to the effects that his death had, starting literally that second he died. The effects were already going into action. Those effects continue until today, through today, so the better we can understand the effects, the impact of his death, the better for us. So let's begin. We'll start with this. Number one, the expectation of Christ's death. Begin with the expectation of Christ's death. And just to set the stage a little bit, to get you back up to speed, look back at verse 33 from uh, last time. Verse 33. It says, when the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was on the cross for six hours, 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. The second half of that time was characterized by this darkness that descends upon the land and Jesus hung there in complete silence and it was during that time we discovered last week that God the Father was fully handing over the Son into his wrath like an iron being fully thrust into the furnace. Jesus had never experienced the Father's wrath before and so as he was experiencing the desolation of all the Father's wrath and none of the Father's comfort he, he lets out this cry relating what he was going through my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We spent all of our time last week trying to unpack and ponder that very profound passage. But today we move on because after Jesus gave that cry from the cross, it caught the attention of others as well. Other people around the cross heard that cry and reacted. And so now we get into verse 35, which says, when some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, behold, he is calling for Elijah. The crucifixion of Jesus had attracted quite a crowd. There was the Roman guard that was at least four soldiers and a centurion, probably more soldiers. The chief priests and the scribes were also in attendance. You know, a lot of movies feature really dumb bad guys. They finally capture the hero and they make a plot to kill the hero, but then they don't stick around to make sure he actually dies. And that's when the hero escapes. But not so with these Jewish religious leaders. They have worked very hard to convict and to condemn Jesus. And they're not going anywhere until they see him die. They're not going to leave that cross until they see the Romans finish the job and Jesus dies. So they're still there. You also have several bystanders and passerbys. This was the eve of Passover, which technically started at sundown that day. This is also on a highway, a busy highway. So hundreds of people would have traveled by the cross by Calvary, and many had stuck around to look and to mock these men on their crosses. You also have a few loved ones of Jesus around the cross, notably Mary, his mother, and a few other women. But they were standing at a distance. They were crowded out by all those who were reveling at a front row seat to watch Jesus die. He put it all together, though, and despite Jesus having hung there for six hours, 
And despite three hours of this bewildering darkness that came upon the land, there's still a pretty sizable crowd around the cross. For the last three of those hours, it seems like everyone's been quiet. There's no record of anyone saying anything during the last three hours. The soldiers, they're probably tired. They're sitting down. They've got nothing to do but wait. The bystanders have probably grown tired of reviling Jesus because he's not responding anymore. And it's just no fun to make fun of someone when they don't respond. The religious leaders don't seem to be saying anything as well. And it's just quiet for three hours. It's silent. But then out of nowhere, it seems, Jesus lets out, verse 34 says, this loud cry that definitely caught them off guard and probably startled them. They weren't expecting that. Jesus hadn't said anything for three hours, just gone quiet on the cross, preparing to die. And furthermore, men dying by crucifixion, especially those who have been beaten so badly, they typically don't have the energy or the lung capacity to make such a cry. But Jesus appears to cry at the top of his lungs, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Everyone around the cross heard this cry. It cut through the silence like a knife and just woke everybody up. Now when they heard the cry, did they understand it? Did they understand the significance of what Jesus was saying? No, not not in the slightest. By no means did they grasp the significance of Christ's statement, which we tried to unpack last time. However, they did immediately know that Jesus was quoting scripture. They all would have instantly recognized this cry of Jesus as being a direct quote, like we learned last time of Psalm 22, verse 1. How do I know this, that they would have recognized this fact? Well, you may have forgotten about this, but earlier that morning, while Jesus was hanging on the cross, the religious leaders of Israel, they used, they themselves used Psalm 22 to mock Jesus while he was hanging there. This is recorded in Matthew, Matthew 27, 43, where, where they said mockingly, He, Jesus, trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. It's very interesting. That statement, it's a direct quote of Psalm 22. Verse 8. Now we've talked about Psalm 22 many times. It, it basically reads like the Old Testament version of Christ on the cross. It's so stunning in its correlation of the circumstances of the death of Jesus. But it makes us wonder, okay, why would these Jews quote Psalm 22.8 to mock Jesus? Well, there is some record of these Jews themselves interpreting Psalm 22 messianically. It is a messianic psalm and And that is how they're using the psalm against Jesus. They're mocking Jesus, who is the supposed Messiah. And what they're getting at is, if you read Psalm 22, you kind of get the impression that this figure, isn't he supposed to be delivered by God? But Jesus is not being delivered. I mean, like God would really let his Messiah die. That's what they all believed. But this helps explain their reaction to Jesus crying out from the cross. When Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They would have all recognized, oh, he's that's Psalm 22, verse 1. But in their mind, why is Jesus saying that? In their mind, they think, well, he's he's finally calling out for deliverance. He's finally calling out to God or, or to Elijah to deliver him from the cross. Remember, in their mind, there's absolutely no concept of a dead Messiah. 
if Jesus actually dies on that cross, it's proof positive to them that he's not the Messiah because there's no way God would let his Messiah die. If Jesus is somehow delivered off the cross, though, then they might, they might rethink whether he's really the Messiah. And by quoting this psalm, they believe Jesus is calling out to God to do just that, to deliver him from the cross. They still don't believe, so they mock him. But that's what's going through their mind. It was also part of their messianic tradition that Elijah would guard and deliver and rescue the Messiah. So this explains again verse 35, which says, When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he's crying for or calling for Elijah. By this time, Elijah had become like the patron saint of sufferers. He was known as a deliverer. Elijah himself escaped death and ascended to heaven in a flaming chariot, remember? So the crowd thinks Jesus is calling to Elijah to deliver him from the cross, which in their minds would prove he's the Messiah. Now at this point, though, Jesus says something else. Recorded in John, after this, John 19.28, It says, Jesus, knowing all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill scripture said, I am thirsty. You remember that? He says, I am thirsty. A side note, Psalm 22, that messianic psalm, also pictures the Messiah as nearly dying of thirst. He's so parched, it says his tongue cleaves to his mouth. But the crowd hears that. Jesus says, I am thirsty. And so someone from the crowd, we don't know who, probably a soldier, decides to give Jesus a drink. And so we get back now to Mark 15:36. And so that, that explains verse 36. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink, saying, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. This person, again, probably a soldier, takes a sponge, dips it in some sour wine, and gives it to Jesus. Sour wine, this was the cheapest wine, highly diluted with water. It was a common drink for laborers and soldiers. They took a sponge, they put it at the end of a hyssop branch, John tells us, only a couple feet long. As another side note, that tells you Jesus wasn't crucified like 20 feet in the air like a lot of ancient paintings portray. He's probably only a few feet off the ground in these crosses. But nonetheless, Matthew's gospel gives us an even bigger picture here. So this guy comes up to Jesus, he's going to give him a drink of water. But when he does so, the crowd tells him to stop. They basically say, hey, not so fast. Let's, let's just wait and see whether Elijah comes for him or not. They didn't want anyone to intervene as they continued to mock Jesus on the cross. I mean, look, this Jesus, he thinks he's the Messiah. He doesn't need our help. So don't give him any water. Let's just, let's just wait and see whether Elijah will really come for him or not. That's what the crowd is saying. But this person, whoever he is, he gives Jesus a drink anyway. And he appears to say back to the crowd, no, permit me to give him a drink to see whether Elijah will really come or not. There may have been a curiosity among this person. I believe this guy who's given Jesus a drink was genuinely curious to see if Elijah would really come. Giving him a drink that's only prolonging his life on the cross. So just let's just see if he really is delivered. Let's see if Elijah really comes to take Jesus off the cross or not. But we know that's not going to happen. Jesus knows that's not going to happen. Elijah isn't coming. Elijah already came. Isn't that what Jesus taught 
of John the Baptist for those with eyes to see. John the Baptist came as the forerunner to the Messiah. He came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. But as we studied way back in Mark chapter 6, what did they do to John? The Jews condemned him. The Romans killed him. And so we find in more ways than one, John really was the forerunner to the Messiah. How they treated John, that's how they're treating Jesus. What they did to John, that's what they're doing now to Jesus. On this occasion, it was not God's will for Jesus to be delivered from that cross, but rather to stay on that cross, to die on that cross as a substitute for sinners. So Jesus knew there would be no deliverance. We, the reader, we know there would be no deliverance. Elijah's not coming. Jesus must die on that cross. And that's all that's left for him to do at this point. He said what he's going to say. All that's left is for him to die. And so we find number two now, the moment of Christ's death. Secondly, the moment of Christ's death. Just one verse. Verse 37. It says, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Right before this, right before that final cry, John 19.30 says, after Jesus received the sour wine and had a little drink, he said one more statement with his next to final breath. He said that famous line, it is finished. It is finished. You can preach a whole sermon on that alone, but in short, with his second to last breath, he let it be known what he had done, what the significance of that work he just accomplished was all about. Payment had been made in full. It's finished. The debt, our sin debt, had been paid back to God in full by his work on the cross. It's finished. There's nothing left. I think our national debt today, it's, it's getting close to $20 trillion. Imagine if that was your personal debt. Like your bank account said, you're in debt $20 trillion. Even Bill Gates it would take him forever to pay that back. Now, that's basically the Catholic view of purgatory, though. That's a place where you go to, keep, to finish paying back to God your remaining debt after you die. It might take you 10,000 years, but that's where you go to pay back. That doesn't sound like good news to me. And that's not the good news. The good news is that Jesus said, it's finished. Your debt, it's been paid in full. There's nothing left to pay back through him. Colossians 2, 13, 14 says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That's the real good news that Jesus drank down the cup of God's wrath for us and there's nothing left in that cup for those in Christ. And so now with the work being finished, the work he came to do being finished, now there's only one thing left for him to do. And so verse 37 says, he utters a final loud cry and then he breathed his last. What was his final loud cry? What did he say? Well, thankfully we know Luke records that final loud cry. Luke 23, 46 says, Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
And having said this, he breathed his last. So that was his final statement from the cross. And it's a special statement, his final words. You know, whatever forsaking the son experienced on the cross by the father as he was made sin for us, whatever happened, it's over now. God never stopped being Christ's father. We know that. But in his desolation, Jesus experienced all the Father's wrath, none of the Father's comfort, and that led him to cry out in desperation, not my Father, my Father, but my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But that time of desolation was over. All was accomplished, and now Jesus cries out to his Father again. He doesn't say, God, my God. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He's already returned to the Father's favor and he entrusts his spirit to the Father's care as he breathes his last. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And with this, he died. But don't, even though it's a short verse, don't fail to pay attention to the manner in which he died. How did he die? What what killed Jesus? We see up until the very last moment, he's still mentally alert and strong. He didn't slowly fade away, and he didn't suffocate to death like most people do when they're crucified. That's the primary mode of death in crucifixion. Rather, he voluntarily yielded up his spirit and just died. The word Matthew uses actually yielded up. He, he gave away his spirit. He let his spirit go. It's like his death was on purpose. A conscious act of volition. He died on purpose the moment he wanted to. It's like he commanded his own death. We'll actually see this next week, but the manner in which Jesus died was so sudden, so stunning, how he seemed to command his own death, that the Roman centurion who's standing right there, when he sees the manner in which Jesus died, it leads him to confess, truly, this man was the Son of God. We'll see that next week. But like Jesus said time and time again, his life wasn't being taken. He didn't lose it. He gave it. He offered his life for us. John 10, verse 17. He says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down I have authority to take it up again. And on the cross, that's what he's doing. With authority, he's commanding his own death. So we find that in life and in death, Jesus was always in command of his destiny. He came to do his Father's will, and this included giving his very life for sin. It's for this reason that the moment of Christ's death, it's marked by victory, not defeat. Normally when someone dies, that that's it. You're done. It's defeat. You've, you've lost whatever cause you were fighting for. But for Jesus alone, when he died, that death was the victory. Through death, he was not defeated on the cross, but he victoriously dealt a fatal blow to sin and Satan and death itself. A victory he would prove upon rising from the dead. As John Owen famously said, in the death of Christ came the death of death. And that is our good news. And from from that moment, from the very moment he breathed his last, everything changed. The world 
completely changed. It would never be the same. The eternal destinies of countless changed. And the effects of his death were felt at that instant, literally. And so we find number three, lastly, the effects of Christ's death. The effects of Christ's death. Again, Mark, only one verse in Mark, and that's what we'll focus on. But don't let that fool you. There's more in here than you might think. Verse 38 now. After he breathed his last, verse 38 says, And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. I'm sure you've noticed how the Gospels, like Matthew and Mark, they read differently than the epistles, like Romans or Ephesians. And that's because the apostles, they came later, and they're purposely trying to flesh out the theology of Christ. Whereas the Gospels, they're trying to record faithfully the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. So they're different. But one thing I love about the Gospels is that they're full of visual theology. You don't get a lot of long theological discourses in the Gospels, but with just a few words, they capture the theological picture God was painting in the death of Christ. And that's what we have here in verse 38. We saw the same thing with the darkness back in verse 33. All Mark tells us in verse 38 is that the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That's it. And on the surface, the casual reader might think, okay, big deal. Why is this here? That seems like a pretty random, meaningless statement. Mark doesn't tell us anything else. He doesn't tell us why this happened, how this happened, the significance of this. He doesn't say anything else about this veil. So we're left, does this mean anything? But to those of the faith, And to those with an Old Testament foundation, what we have here is something you might call visual theology. This is a living theology lesson that God himself gave at the moment of Christ's death. And Mark's gospel records it so that the faithful might learn the impact of Christ's death in a special way. And so like we did with the darkness that descended upon the land, let's spend a few moments to unpack what's going on with this veil. And like I said, if you know your Old Testament, you've seen this veil before. You know what's going on here. And back when God redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt, he made them his people. And he wanted to dwell in their midst. So he gave them instructions to build for him a place, a tabernacle, later a temple. And that's where God would dwell in their midst. Whenever Israel camped, at the very center was what? The tabernacle. God wanted to picture himself literally in their midst with his people. But there was still a level of separation because the people were unclean before this holy God in their midst. And imagine it, it's raining outside, you have a dog, he's covered in mud, he's at the door, he wants to come inside, but you just installed brand new white carpet everywhere. So are you going to let the dog inside? No, I mean, there's no way. You're letting that dog inside because he's unclean. And morally, that's the picture of us before God. And so the ordinary Jew could not even step inside that tabernacle. They could not even go inside where God's presence was. They were still, God was in their midst, but they were still at arm's reach. They were still a measure separated from God. Only the priests could enter the temple. 
These were your mediators, your go-betweens. You needed someone to go between you and God. They would take your sacrifices to God. You were too unclean to enter into God's presence. But even the priests were kept separate from the presence of God. Just think about that. Even the holiest man in Israel was still too unclean to enter into God's special presence. And so within the tabernacle, God made a room within a room called the Holy of Holies. You remember? And this is where God made his special presence to dwell. And separating this room from the rest of the temple was a veil. Exodus tells us that this veil was made of blue and purple and scarlet material woven together. It was like a thick curtain. A similar veil was found in Herod's temple in the time of Jesus. Josephus tells us about the veil in the temple of Jerusalem. It was about 80 feet tall, 24 feet wide, guarding the Holy of Holies. Embroidered on it were the 12 zodiac signs of the constellations, the 12 animals picturing the heavens. But even the priests could not enter through that veil. Nobody goes through the veil into God's presence. They're too unclean. All are unclean. All are stained by sin, even the priests before a perfectly holy God. It makes you wonder, if that's true, how could God even come this close and be in their midst? How could he even get this close to the people? Well, the answer there is through sacrifice. God made a provision to cover the sins of the people. So even though they are unclean, they're covered, so therefore he could be in their midst. Sacrifice was the way. Specifically, there was one main sacrifice a year that covered the sins of the people and the priests, known as the Day of Atonement. Talked about before. The high priest would sacrifice for himself and for all the people, and on that day only could the high priest enter into the veil and into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God. He would take the blood of the sacrifice, sprinkle it on the mercy seat, in the Holy of Holies. And God would reckon that blood as covering the sins of his people so that he could dwell with them. But as you all know, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. This is only provisional. And so it had to be done year after year after year. Its imperfect nature was seen by its imperfect results. Think about this. Each year, Day of Atonement, made atonement for the sins of the people, covered their sins. But after that happened, could the people then all of a sudden walk inside the veil? No, they couldn't. Even after that sacrifice had been made, they were still kept out of the presence of God. They were still a measure separate. This is something the writer of Hebrews stresses over and over, the imperfect nature of those sacrifices. Hebrews 9, 9 It says, the sacrifices offered cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Hebrews 10.1 says, the law can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, it can never make perfect those who draw near. Hebrews 10.4, it is impossible for the blood of bull and goats to take away sin. Hebrews 10.11 says, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time, The same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Hebrews 10.11. Those sacrifices, they can never 
take away sins. They cover it, but they don't take it away. Just go back to that dog illustration. The dog's out there muddy. It's raining, wants to come inside. What are you going to do? Well, you'll probably take a towel and wrap up the dog, bring it inside, but you're still not going to let it onto the carpet. See, it's one thing to cover up the unclean dog. It's another to actually cleanse it, to clean it. And that's what the sacrifice of Jesus did. He functioned as both the priest and the sacrifice. And he offered himself, his own blood, on the altar. And by virtue of his perfect life, he could actually make clean those who approach him by faith. Hebrews 9.12 says Christ functioning as our high priest. It says he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. He did this not through the blood of bulls and goats, but through his own perfect blood. By virtue of his perfect life given for you, you now can be made perfect. Those old sacrifices could never make you perfect, but his one sacrifice can make you perfect forever. And so Hebrews 10:11 continues and says, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins, but verse 12, he having offered one sacrifice for all time sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet, for by one offering, just one offering He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Verse 18 says, Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there no longer remains an offering for sin. See, now through the finished work of Christ, we can be totally forgiven and restored to God directly. You don't need a priest. You don't need a sacrifice. You just need Christ. And he enables you now to enter through that veil to be in the very presence of God himself. Nothing separates us from God any longer. Not our sins. Jesus took them all away. The doors to God have been flung wide open. And is this not what God himself was showing when the veil tore in two from top to bottom at the moment Christ died? No animal sacrifice ever tore that veil. Only the death of Jesus did that. Notice the supernatural timing of this tear. It just just so happens to tear into the moment he dies. And notice the supernatural tear itself. 80 feet or 80 foot tall curtains don't just split in two by themselves from top to bottom. But God was doing this to indicate that his work was done. This was his doing. The way to God is open. The way to God's presence now is open. There's no more veil because of that death, the death of Christ. Same time, Jesus died, 3 p.m. At that same time in the temple, the priests were sacrificing the Passover lambs for Passover. And so was not God indicating, as we've seen time and time again, it's over. There's a new Passover, a new day of atonement, together as one in Christ. And that's all we need. God himself was testifying with some visual theology of the effects of Christ's death. Namely, that now through him, through his blood, through his death, 
the way to God's presence is open. The door is open. All may enter through Christ. Sin had separated all of us far away from God eternally, but Jesus swallowed that up. He bridged that gap. He brings us back. And by faith, we can enter through that veil and be with God. Like in the garden, like in heaven, we can be with God once again. Hebrews 6, 19 and 20 says, This hope we have as the anchor of our soul, a hope but sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever. I mean, do you see the hope we have now in Christ? There's no more temple. That's not what we're talking about here. But he enables us to enter through that heavenly veil into the heavenly tabernacle, God's real presence, without fear. We don't belong there. We are unclean. But in Christ, we do. Because he cleanses us, he makes us new, and he brings us there. That's our confidence. That's our life. And clearly, how you can see how this sacrifice of Christ now demands your all. It demands your life. He offered his life for you, but for you to receive your life means you, you give your life to him by faith. So will you believe in him and follow him for your life? Speaking of the demands Christ's sacrifice places on our lives, This is how Hebrews 10 ends. And I love this passage, so listen to this. You can turn if you want. It's a very special passage talking about what the the death of Jesus accomplished. Hebrews 10.19 says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, so he's saying, since all that's true, since Jesus died for us, he entered the veil, he he opened the way to God, since all that's true, therefore, and now he gives three applications. And so the first one, verse 22, he says, therefore, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The first application, what Jesus did on that cross, is to draw near. Draw near to God. Do so with confidence and assurance by faith. Maybe some of you, you you still live with guilt. Maybe some of you think, you know, you've lived a life of wickedness, and so you think God could never accept me. I mean, after all the things I've done, there's no way God could accept me. And you know what? You're right. God cannot accept you, but he can accept his son in your place. So run to Christ by faith and enter in. It's not, it's not by your own boldness, but by him you can enter in boldly into his presence. So draw near. Notice in this verse it says he takes your heart. He doesn't cover it, but he cleanses it with clean water. I mean, have you experienced this new birth in Jesus Christ? Then all the more, draw near. God wants you near. And the closer you get to God, the more you live for him and his glory. So the first application, draw near. Secondly, he says in verse 23, he says also, let us 
hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The second application to what Jesus did for us dying on that cross is perseverance. First, draw near. Second, hold on. Hold on to your hope, the hope of complete forgiveness in him. Again, even for Christians, there comes a temptation to return to dead religion. Maybe you sin high-handedly against God and that thought pops in your mind uh, after this, I'm out. I, I must have fallen out of God's favor. I must have fallen out of his presence. I'm not sure you can take me back after what I just did. I've got to, I've got to do something. Maybe if I do something, maybe if I do some good deed, maybe if I read my Bible a lot and pray, maybe if I do some penance, he'll accept me back after what I just did. That's not our hope. That, that's not good news. Our hope is that despite our sin, Jesus has already cleansed us fully. And that's not an excuse to go on sinning. Far from it. But it's a hope that despite our fallenness, God, he's already fully accepted us in Christ. It's already done. If you have that faith in Christ, you're already fully accepted. And with that hope, we can press on. We can press on toward holiness and godliness. And this hope does indeed drive greater holiness because we're so overwhelmed by God's grace, all just by his favor. So first, draw near. Second, hold on. The third application he gives is verse 24 and 25. He says, thirdly, and also let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And that day is drawing near. Remember, this is all still a direct application of what Jesus did for us, when he died for us. He tore that veil. And what does that mean for us now? Well, we have confidence to enter in, to draw near. We have strength and power to hold on, to persevere in this faith. And now, as we're in the presence of God, the application is to live like it. And we still await that full presence. We're not in heaven yet. We're assured of it, but we're not there yet. But the third application basically is to live like it anyway. Live like a heavenly citizen, because you are. And this involves the church, because Jesus died to gather all of his bride. He died for his church. He loves his church. His church will be fellowshipping with him and one another for all eternity. So why would you forsake his church? I mean, sure, the church is not perfect right now, but why not be a part of the solution rather than the part of the problem? Why not, like he says, as an application, encourage one another and love one another? Why not give yourself over to the holiness and godliness and strength of those around you in this church? Jesus died for his church. He rose for his church. He lives now forever interceding for his church. And he wants you, because of his death, he wants you now to be consumed with that same interest and concern for his church. And I said earlier, never has a death so changed the world. And that's true. After that day, after that moment when he died, the veil was torn. Things would never be the same. 
The old covenant has passed away. We're now in the new covenant. The world is, is forever new. And literally, the effects of his death were being felt that very moment and forevermore. They continue today, do they not? Does not the effects of that, of that death still continue today? It's like a drop in the ocean, the ripples go out and they never end. And here we are today. And God has willed that the effects of Christ's death ripple throughout history forever. And, and the medium that they travel is, is the church. We are now the effects of his death. As he cleanses you by your faith, as he brings you near by your faith. So you now live as lights for him. That's how God transforms the world. That is his plan to turn the world upside down in this age until the day comes, using his church to change the world. That is how God continues to apply through his spirit, by his grace, but he uses the church to apply the effects of his death in this age. So now you, as we leave, take part. Take part in changing the world through him. Through that death, we have received that death. We believe we have entered in by faith. If you haven't, make today that day where you enter in confidently by faith in him into God's presence. But for those who have, take take part. Believe in him. Be changed by him. And then just be used by him in whatever way to spread the glories of his grace and his gospel throughout the world. That is our hope, to be with him. And although we wait the time to be in his presence, we're going to live like it for now and let his glory be known. For the way is open and people need to know the veil has been torn and the way is open. Let's tell them and let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this work and this word of the work of Christ. That he was not delivered. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for not being delivered from death on the cross, but going all the way in obedience to the Father and offering up that last breath. Because until that last breath came, the veil remained intact. It took that last breath for the veil to be torn, for the dead to be raised, for life to come to us. But it has. And Christ, in rising from the dead, sealed his victory. New life can be ours, can be anyone by faith in him now. So we pray, Lord, for any here this morning whose hearts have not been given over to you, you would, you would affect them, you would invade them, you would challenge and convict them to, to end their lives in this life and to turn to you by faith, to die to self and to rise to new life in Christ. Help them to turn, cause them to turn to you by faith. And for us who have, Lord, we just rejoice. Take a little more delight this morning remembering what you have done for us. We were lost and separate. We were unclean standing at your door. But you cleansed us. And then you brought us inside. And so we thank you for that, Lord. We await the glories of heaven. May we leave now renewed to live like heavenly citizens. We are there in spirit. Our Lord is there. Our life is there, hid on high. And so may we now partake in, in your work of changing this world until the day draws near for your glory. Empower us, strengthen us to do this, and we will worship you as we leave. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.